You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. The screening is part of this year's Environmental Film Festival Australia, which is uh, happening in Melbourne very shortly. Night Parrot Stories is a film that follows filmmaker Robert Nugent's quest to unearth evidence of the existence of the mysterious night parrot, which was until recently thought to have disappeared at the end of the 19th century. The search takes Robert to areas across the central Australian desert, where he speaks to locals and a number of Aboriginal community groups about the stories and mythology surrounding the nocturnal creature. Uh, Rob also heads to museums, really dusty kind of um, bleak-looking museums in Europe to examine some of the last remaining specimens of the parrot. To talk more about this intriguing story and film, I'm joined by Rob Nugent on the line from Canberra. Thanks for being there, Rob. Hi, Dylan. Thank you for talking to me. So when did your interest in the night parrot begin? Oh, boy. Um, uh, oh, it's sort of like most ideas. They evolve out of really small germs of conversations. Uh, an ornithologist friend gave me a book uh, which is about a crazy search for the night parrot by Dale Stibbins called A Horse of Air, which is which sort of um, got me thinking about how the how obsession the obsessions around searching for for animals and various things grow. And uh, the night parrot certainly um, has had this sort of mythology around it. The the more it went missing, the more people uh, searched for it, and uh, the more they searched for it, the more they didn't find it. So. Um, it, it, it grew a bit like the thylacine of the air, really, um, in bird, bird watching circles, and then crossed over into more uh, artistic sort of uh, renderings of it. Uh, John Kinsella's poetry, Dorothy Porter. So there's a whole sort of, I uh, sort of fell into that orbit, I suppose. And um, it's a nocturnal bird that um, nobody could see, and I thought, well, there's a, an immediate cinematic challenge and <laughs> perversely I thought well you know <laughs> I'll have a crack at that so I, I did get some development funding from Screen Australia and sort of went from there really um and so, so tell us a little bit about, about the story of the night parrot because in the, in the 19th century, as your film uh, sort of documents or alludes to, there were specimens being sent over to Europe. But over the past sort of century or, or more, it's, been, it's, it's really eluded humans, hasn't it? That's right. Um, it, um, it, it, people became aware of it until the 1860s, uh, around when the first specimen was shot, and then um, the explorers would go forth and they would shoot everything in their path and collect them for for the for the great sort of um scientific endeavor of naming new species that was taking place at that time and um this bird uh wasn't immediately recognized as rare because it didn't they didn't recognize anything that they were seeing really um they were naming things as they found them and the night parrot um they suddenly realized this is a, a nocturnal uh parrot an unusual bird and it was they realized it was hard to find and uh so then there were various uh, people who were, were able to find them, possibly with the, the assistance of the indigenous populations, uh, people, and uh, Aboriginal people. And, and um, rare, rarities were sought out by the great collectors, um, Rothschild and Lord Derby. Uh, these people would send sort of mercenary uh, collectors out really uh, and part of museum collections and um, had, then in about 100 years ago they, they realised this bird just couldn't be found anymore and it was it was pretty much declared you know gone 100 years ago 
Uh, but it kept uh, tantalising evidence kept turning up, and um, so uh, yeah, I think the the, the the idea that you have a bird that is nocturnal, it's mysterious, it, it's um, it's extremely rare. These factors led to. Um, a story developing around the night parrot that um, became it became a little bit of a legend in, and a myth in bird circles and um, more widely. So yeah, well, it, um, se- it seems like a story that that is really well known or is present in some of the places you visit. There's one scene in your film where there's um, kind of a I don't know if it's like a, a rodeo or something like that out in a um, looks like a, a rural kind of cattle station, and the the commentator says, "Oh, he's perching up on the." fence like a night parrot so, so is there a real sense from the places you visited that that the night parrot even though it's not present is is kind of there in the background oh people all the property owners out in western queensland know about the night parrot if you ask them they will because uh, people just go asking them that particular scene i had to go there it was in birdsville so if you're going to make a film about a, a rare bird you have to go to a place called <laughs> That was in. That was the Birdsville Road Day. It was sort of a, a nightmare scene, I suppose. My, you know, a lot of the. Um, if you go on a search for something and you can't find it, you have a lot of internal conversations in your head about is this a folly or not, and um, you know, the, there's dark nights of the soul. And if you're up searching for night parrots, um, there's certain. Uh, lends itself to insomnia, I suppose. So that that particular scene is sort of. Uh, uh, it's there amongst a range of other things looking at um, uh, ways of life we have brought into these these worlds where the night parasitic parrot exists. And I was quite interested in sort of uh, perhaps looking at more the, um, uh, the, the way that we, we think about creatures that are from a very human, human, human point of view. It's very hard to... Um, there's a lot of environmental philosophy. Uh, Donna Haraway uh, talks about the, 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 our inability to think about other creatures' worlds. And I was thinking of how the night parrot might look back at us. So <laughs> there's a sense of framing um, its existence by it, um, the absence around it. And these are the things that are occurring in the habitats, uh, the, the environments that the night parrot did once exist in, because certainly its range has now it's vanishingly rare it does while we were making the film while I was making the film um, the, 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 the conversation certainly in western Queensland would be oh I'm looking for the night parrot and you know there'd be a smirk and people would not necessarily take me that seriously <laughs> <laughs> and so of course the, these if you're in a town for long enough in a place like Birdsville people know that there's this crazy guy looking for a night parrot and, and so he and I was there filming the road day and uh, um he did reference me in his commentary. Um, <laughs> so that, that, that particular scene, sort of uh, like a lot of the scenes that, uh, in the film, they, um, they, they represent my, my thinking through, the, through a video camera, I suppose, how I'm, how I'm bumping into um, these night sort of situations that are framed by an inquiry, and that was one of them. Well, it's, I don't think... I've ever seen a film quite like it. It's shot incredibly. I mean, I don't remember seeing the Australian landscape depicted in the way that you do. It's incredibly beautiful, but also kind of foreboding. There's almost a ghost-like 
aesthetic to the film. There's there's long shots of um, kind of craggy bushes out in the desert and and of, of roadkill, and you've got this sense that the the night parrot's kind of there as a, a ghostly figure almost. That it's not in frame, but it's it, it inhabits the space through through mythology and um, you know whether or not it it is out there in the present. And I wonder how how you came to that that aesthetic i suppose of the film because you you have kind of philo- philosophical musings throughout it you allude to mh370 of course that the airplane that disappeared around that time how did that inform your approach um i was i was shooting it by myself so there was i was using um diaries uh, so I'm, I'm filming uh, a lot um and then I'm reflecting on it in diaries, so I was sort of reflecting on uh, contemp- contemporaneous events. Um, and MH370, MH370 had gone missing um, at the time of that search, and it sort of had a parallel feel to this the, the uh, a missing object and creature that could not be found. And um, the I, I didn't. I'm aware of sort of the aesthetic of the Australian Gothic, and I. I sort of was reacting a little bit against that. There was, I was trying to position the landscapes as um, very much. Uh, there's no drone shots in them. There's no the classic aesthetic of the films these days. You've got a lot of drones, and I, I sort of reacted against. I just wanted a very much a landscape approach, very much like a landscape painters would use from about that angle. So I was um, framing. Uh, uh, things like that set against, I suppose, the classic journey through Australia is down roads. You see a lot of roadkill. You'll see a lot of picnic tables where, you, where you're forced to sit in these rather surreal, shadeless environments in the, on these lonely roads. Um, and I guess that fed into... <laughs> um, it's not a road trip film, but the what came out of it was a lot of um, uh, not 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 postcards from from the edge, but but it's certainly certainly like that. And I'm constantly interrogating how I may encounter um, the environments I was visiting, and, and it's not a random trip. I am going to visit places where the night parrot had once been seen and um, so all those locations where which we come across in the film are places where there once were night parrots reported and that's why I went there and then, but I did want to almost look at it like the situations would look at urban environments um, what, and in the course of making the film of course um, it turned up you know and uh, this was good news for the night parrot but not great news for my film because I thought the whole premise of my film was going to be a mythology and, and it wasn't a myth. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, I, uh, that drove the film in a different direction. I think it did drive it towards looking at alternative perspectives and, and looking at certainly honouring and trying to honour Indigenous perspectives against sort of the, the hand of science that also appears in the film. Yes, The Night Parrots appeared. It's um, categorically been filmed um, and uh, Bush Heritage, uh, which is, which is a, um, a non-government organisation um, that um, has has, um, has got a property out in Western Queensland where the night parrot now lives. Now there's a whole story around how that came to be, and it's been followed in the, you know, the, in the press recently. Mm. 
So, um, but yes, good. There is, there are night parrots out there, and if you, um, if you are, you know, that way inclined, if you wish to look at night parrots, they're not out there, but there, there are probably many. It does mean that there are viable populations of night parrots, probably spread across those environments uh, through Central Australia, um, and. Um, uh, uh, yeah, um, it, it's it's good news. It was it was, a, but it was a strange journey for the film because I, uh, <laughs> um, and, and um, they, they're, they're naturally people are very coy about um, revealing the location of of the night parrot simply because they are so rare and they don't wish to you know um, run into problems around people running out to try and you know, looking for them. Um, without which could affect um, <laughs> what may be very very low numbers of these birds. So, um, but uh, yes, very. Um, if you get onto the Bush Heritage website, you'll have a lot of information about the night parrot on there. Well, it's, it's an intriguing story and a, a film that would definitely be worth seeing on the big screen. Night Parrot Stories is screening uh, next Tuesday, October fourth at eight thirty p.m. at Acme as part of the Environmental Film Festival Australia. And we've been talking to the the film's director, writer. You really did everything for it, didn't you, Rob? I did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, filmmaker Rob Nugent has been speaking all about that film. Thanks so much for coming on Triple R. Thanks very much, Dylan. For many at-risk young people, the experience of winding up in juvenile detention or prison can mark the beginning of many years in the criminal justice system. But there are, of course, those who manage to turn their lives around, often against all odds, through a combination of personal determination and resilience and the assistance of key individuals, mentors and support workers. White Lion is one organisation that does the amazing work of helping at-risk young people to envisage a better life and break the cycle of criminal activity, substance abuse or incarceration that often has people so paralysed. The organisation's general manager, Rachel Porter, has written a new book that tells the story of nine men from troubled backgrounds who managed to transform their lives. It also includes insights from those in the system who are engaged with criminal and at-risk use on a regular basis. To talk more about these issues, I'm joined in the studio by Rachel Porter, as well as Dean Pretty, a 24-year-old man who has his own story to tell and has been involved with White Lion. Welcome to you both to Triple R. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much for having us. And so, Rachel, I'll, I'll start with you. You, as someone who uh, works with at-risk young people through your work with White Lion, can you ever tell who the, the individuals are who are kind of ready to make that change to, to transform their lives when they're part of the system? Well, we have a chatterbox bus that goes around the city five nights a week and that bus provides material aid, uh, food for them and also once they get on the bus they start engaging with our outreach workers. Um, it gives them the opportunity to talk about their background, what they've been through. Um, we start to identify their needs um, so we can get them re-engaged in the community through education or employment and also provide a mentor which is very important. So that, that's how we start to engage with some of the young people. Others come through referrals and some ring us directly themselves. But the Chatterbox bus is, you know, visits all the, the hot spots and it's a, a really good way of them starting to engage with the organisation. And the, the nine stories that are told in this book, they're all unique stories from the, these nine men, but there's also common themes across many of them that I suppose aren't in some ways all that surprising. There's stories of, of family breakdown, of abusive environments and childhoods and, and mental illness. Are, are these really common stories that, that you hear in the work that you do when you're engaging with, with people who might be on the streets or, or, or engaged in, in juvenile detention and so on? 
It's not in every case, but yes, you're right, it's a common theme. And they've grown up with a sense of um, wanting to belong, um, wanting to be loved, um, wanting to feel secure and safe, and they haven't felt that in their home life. And uh, they've been through a very traumatic, very, very rough time. But against all odds... They've, as you probably read, Dylan, when you read the book, they've t- totally turned their lives around. Mm. And and Dean, you're not featured in the book, but um, but I want to hear a bit about your story because you've been involved with White Lion and, and have really um, transformed from from where you were in your your earlier situation to where where you are now. What's um what's a little bit about your history? Um, so my history with White Lion kind of starts about I think about eight years ago, um, just with the Chatterbox bus, um. You know, like they always came out to... I used to hang around a skate park in the city and they would always come down and offer a conversation, you know, some noodles and all that kind of stuff, which everyone loved. <laughs> um, you know, but from there, my life kind of went downhill. I, um, you know, started using ice and... You know, I, um, I really didn't go down that path, like, full steam ahead. I... Um, you know, at the time, I didn't realise how much damage I was kind of doing to my life, and I, um, you know, I lost contact with my family, um, which is fair enough, like, totally fair enough. I, um, you know, my choices in life, my activities and stuff, I guess we were not the same as what they would have wanted. So I, um, you know, I left home at a young age, and um, I, yeah, I just tried living each day, like making sure I'd at least make it through the day. And White Line definitely helped me do that for quite some time, like just to make sure that I'd be safe. And um, every time I would be arrested, uh, White Line were there to answer the phone to help me get out of the cop shop. And, um, you know, this went for a long time, and a few workers suggested a few things to me. And, you know, at the time I was like, nah, like I've got this, I know what I'm doing, blah, blah, blah. And, um, you know, I guess when they were suggesting those things, they kind of planted the seed. And, um, you know, once I got tired of uh, being assaulted or being arrested and you're tired of just using it, it was just so draining. Um, you know, while I were there and they helped me get into a rehab. And, um, you know, if I ever needed to ring, a, like, someone, I could always ring them. Uh, my family got in contact with me again and they came and see me at rehab. But, um, you know, like, every rehab story is not the best. And, um, you know, I was kicked out a few times, let back in. Um, you know, for about six months I was there, and then after I left I relapsed again. And, um, you know, White Line were just always trying to get a hold of me, like find out if I was okay, you know, whether that was to tell my parents I was all right or whatever. Like, mm. they would always ring me up and it would always change my day. Like, I'd always, you know, after that I'd decide, well, maybe I need to go to a meeting, like, I need to try and, um, you know, December last year, I went to a mental hospital in Geelong and then they transferred me to this other place. And, you know, through there, I would ring my workers every day, but also I'd ring my family. And um, just for a conversation, like every day I'd make sure I'd ring and I'd talk to my mum or my dad for like half an hour. And, um, you know, through that, I really built a strong relationship with them. And now I live at home and once I moved home, I went back into the White Line office and I was like, look, you know, there's got to be something that I can do to fill up my time here. And what is it? And, um, you know, I spent a lot of time just either hanging out in the office with some workers or, you know, and then they offered me this barista course. And at the time I was a bit like, uh, I don't really think that's my kind of thing. But um, after I did it, I fell in love with it and I started volunteering and, 
you know, we'd go out to like either just to sell coffee to fundraise or we'd go to like a youth centre to teach some other kids and, um, you know, at the end of June, White Line kind of approached me and they were like, look, we have a job for you, so if you want it, it's yours. And I took it and I haven't looked back. Mm. And, I mean, what what's really interesting from reading this book and, and the sorts of lives that, that the men have led is that they're, they're extremely self-aware and, and reflective in the, the position they're in at this point in time. And, and I wonder for, for you, Dean, I mean, you mentioned that um, when you were going through some of the, the darkest times that you, you weren't, I guess, aware of the, the um, harm you were causing yourself. But in, in reflection, do you kind of, uh, can, can you, uh, I guess, understand those decisions you made and, and, and have mechanisms for not making those decisions again? Yeah, well, like at the time when I was making those decisions, like I was in a lot of pain, like I just really hated my life and I didn't want to be around. But, I, you know, I think the only thing that kept me going was using, like the only reason why I never really tried, like actually tried to kill myself is because I was worried I wasn't going to use again. But, um, you know, like I spent a lot of time talking to a lot of people to figure out what these problems were and like now I know that it's it's okay, it's totally okay to be upset or to have a down day or... You know, like, you get, take the good with the bad, and now I get that. So mm. it's something I've learned, and it's a really good tool. And, and Rachel, the, the byline um, to this book is doing time. Everyone deserves a second chance. And, and it really kind of rings true when you're reading the stories of these nine men in the book that some of them have done quite terrible things. They've been maybe violent in their past. Some of them who have been at Pentridge Prison, for example. How important is, is that to, to give people that chance to rehabilitate, even though they might have done things that, that many people would think were, were terrible? Look, it's really important, Dylan, and I learnt that um, through writing this book over a two-year period um, that everyone does deserve a second chance. They deserve um, less judgment and more compassion. And there was just one, I'll give you one quick um, story that was, for me, um, it just left me with goosebumps. Um, I went in to interview um, a, a man that had, for three months, he was undecided whether he wanted to step forward and take his story and finally he did and I was greeted at the door with his partner his little two-year-old running around on a, a little scooter and he'd rebuilt his life he totally changed his life around stable job good home good family and I sat down the first 10 minutes he started telling me a story about a car that he stole and it was the turning point for him and the last car that he'd ever stolen and he described it in such detail that I knew that that was my car that had been stolen years and years and years earlier. And I was sitting there looking at this person um, who had, had done this. And I remembered how I looked for my car in that spot and it was gone and how I felt. And I was just, you know, thought in one dimension or sort of attitude, you know, just my car's gone. Um, I hope they catch the thieves. I hope they punish them. So mm. I didn't really look at the reasons why. And, you know, it was really, um, it was one of those aha moments for me um, that, you know, here this person is, He's had a tragic life. Um, his dad was very violent to his mum and he had all sorts of circumstances that were very unpleasant when he was growing up, very traumatic. And, you know, there I was just thinking of, you know, let's just punish him. 
So, um, you know, this book has been life-changing for me too as an author um, and the men I met, um, you know, will st- I'm sure stay in my life uh, for some time. You don't finish um, that relationship with them when you finish writing mm. the book. Um, I'm so um, proud of each and every one of them and what they've made of their lives. And in many cases, they're, they're split-second decisions, aren't they, that, that someone makes that might lead them to, to prison for, for 20, 25 years. There's there's one person who was on in the book who was on kind of a, a robbery spree, was was robbing TABs around town and, and became really close to, to killing a police officer. And he's so honest in, in reflecting on that and saying it, it really could have happened, but it didn't. And the fact that it didn't obviously meant that he didn't have to deal with the, the trauma of, of having actually killed somebody, but also didn't wind up in prison for the rest of his life. That's right. And I think all of us can relate to a sliding door moment, going down one path or the other, the dark path or a path that leads us to an opportunity. And I believe that's so important in life that you have people around you um, also that are good mentors and can support you. Um, it will often influence you to go down the right path. So a lot of the men in the stories haven't had that luxury of having a family or really supportive people around them or that one core mentor. So they've chosen a dark path and then it's a slippery slope if you have that sliding door moment and you start to choose and go down the wrong path. Speaking of mentoring, I understand, Dean, you've been involved in, in speaking to young people who, who are in pretty difficult situations. What's that process been like for you? Um, well, a good example, I guess, would be this weekend. I um, you know, I was out for, on my corrections order doing a course and um, you know, on the first day they made us like, introduce ourselves and say what we do and you know, what our passions are and blah, blah, blah. And it's really cool that my passion is my job, so it makes it a lot easier. But one of the girls didn't say anything on the first day, but, um, you know, yesterday when we all got there and we were on our first break, she came up to me and she's like, you know, everything you said yesterday really, like, I went home and I thought about it and, like, it really just seems like my situation. And, like, she just wanted, she wanted to know how we could help her or how she could help any of our other young people. Because, um, you know, she grew up in Resi Care and obviously being at a corrections thing, look, she's done the wrong thing a couple of times. But just to see that other people want to make the change and, you know, just by something I've said is really rewarding. And it, it's it's genuine because you've you've lived it and you've come out of it. And, and having that experience would, 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 I imagine, make people listen to you a lot more carefully than someone who hasn't been through that sort of experience. Yeah, well, I kind of like, you know, now I'm thinking about the time we went out to... Um, a place for the salvos and they, it was just a lot of residential care kids that were there and um, they told, they pre-warned us before we got there that these kids were going to be a bit difficult and um, hard to work with. But, um, you know, when I took them for one-on-ones with the coffee machine and I spoke to them and, you know, I told them a bit of my story, they really opened up to me and they really saw that, like, you know, they thought that their life was just going to be this way and after speaking with them, they were kind of, they really, they thanked me at the end of the day, like, they really were appreciative of what we'd done and like compared to what they told us that we were walking into to the end it was amazing mm-hmm. like, these kids really paid attention they really wanted to learn like they had that will to learn which um you know i guess like at the end of the day me and my work mate we kind of high-fived like you know <laughs> we've done a great job today but um 
Yeah, that's just another example, I guess. Mm. And, and I wonder, Rachel, how, how important you, you think it is to keep young people out of detention and out of prison because it, it's widely known that there can be this knock-on effect that once someone is in one of these environments, they're associating with other people who might have criminal and, and traumatic backgrounds and the sorts of things that people see in prison, as some of these uh, men in the book document, are, are really harrowing. And, and I guess our, our prison law and order system exists for, for two reasons, to prevent harm that it, to the community, but also there's a moral aspect that people should be punished for, for the crimes that they commit. How important is it to keep people out of that system, to give that, them that chance of rehabilitation? Well, fortunately, these days we have a lot more organisations like White Lion that are there as a support system and also diversion and other options. Um, so things have progressed considerably um, to what some of the men were speaking about in the book. And, um, I mean, if, if people out there are listening and, and uh, want to get in touch, if they're going through particularly difficult circumstances, what's the best thing, thing for them to do to get in touch with White Lion? They can either phone us um, on age 35408 or they can go to our website also, which is whitelion.org.au. Well, the book is called Doing Time. It's out now through Rockpool Publishing. You can get it um, via White Lion's website, can you? And, yes, that's correct. And bookstores as well. And money raised from the book goes back into White Line services too, doesn't it? It certainly does. And it's a really um, interesting read and uplifting read and seeing how people can transform their lives. We've been speaking with the general manager of White Line as well as Dean Pretty. Thanks so much for coming on Triple R. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Throughout Australia's history, countless numbers of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children were forcibly removed from their families as part of a concerted federal and state government policy. And while we can all acknowledge the pain and heartbreak this would have inevitably inflicted on the families of these stolen generations, at the time. There are thousands of untold stories that point to the intergenerational trauma that's occurred as a result and the enduring impact of these practices. This is a subject of a play appearing as part of this year's Melbourne Fringe Festival. It's called Heart and it weaves together the testimonies of four men who've been deeply affected by these forced removal policies. It's performed solely by award-winning Nunga artist Ian Michael and to talk more about it I'm joined by Ian today in the studio. Welcome to Triple R. Thanks for having me. And so, I mean, these stolen generations, I guess, is um, something that, that people, all Australians, should be familiar with, at least in general, about what happened and so on. But, and it's been represented in films such as Rabbit Proof Fence. And of course, uh, in 2008, we had the high profile apology to the stolen generations by then Prime Minister Kevin Rudd. What made you want to tell these particular stories in this play? Well, it's really interesting you say that because I never learnt about the stolen generation as a child. Or as a teenager. So I didn't know anything about what had happened to my own people until I'd left high school. And it was in 2008 when I was at Whopper and the apology happened and I kind of, everything kind of started clicking. I'd seen Rabbit Proof Fence like everybody had seen as a teenager and could have really shocked and a little bit ashamed of myself that I didn't know. And so over the years I've started learning more about it and asking questions to my family and what sparked the reason to write heart was about a year and a half ago I was having a conversation with a friend and she said to me did you hear about the statistics that just came out about Aboriginal kids being taken away at a higher rate right now than the stolen generation mm. and of course just something in me just really sunk and I knew that I had to say something and I you know have to if I write plays and that's that's how I express my thoughts and my feelings so I yeah thought about writing a play and I wanted to write a narrative but quickly realised I couldn't imagine these experiences that these people had had, so 
throughout all that research, we found testimonials, and then we conducted interviews with people. So, and then kind of constructed this script. And, and as you say, I mean, I mean, these sorts of practices are, are still continuing today with with Aboriginal children in in you know out of family care mm-hmm. and in very large numbers. Yeah, um, it's the worst than it's ever been, and it's each year is getting worse and worse. And Victoria is one of the worst states for it. So. Yeah, something really needs to change soon. <laughs> and so you read testimonials, as you mentioned, of, of people who'd been impacted by, by these forced removal policies. And you tell your own story as, as part of this play and weave together the stories of three other men as well. How did you, you come to want to tell their particular stories out of, out of all the ones that you read and engaged with? Yeah, well, after we'd constructed the script, we then wanted to make sure that we got permission to tell the story. So... Um, we called around about six or seven people and found it quite hard to find some of them. And we were never going to do the play unless we had uh, permission. So the permission that we got were from Noongar men. And so then it kind of made sense that we were just... And I felt a really great responsibility to tell Noongar stories as a Noongar person. So, yeah, it all kind of just organically clicked into place that we would tell Noongar stories. And, um, yeah, it's... It feels the right way to do it. Mm. Yeah. And what was that that process like when you were having these these conversations and interviews with these men dealing with with very complex and and dark subject matter? Was, was that a difficult process to go through? Yeah. It was not even just like writing a play. It was discovering everything about your family and discovering everything about your people's history and the truth of the country that you live in. At the same time, I was writing a play. I was rehearsing a play. <laughs> And then just having these complete mind and personal breakthroughs. Um, and then during the performance of last year at Fringe, really, really felt the weight of the darkness and the trauma of these men. And, you know, over the past year, I've been able to kind of work through that <laughs> um, and be able to, I guess, perform now rather than be the sole vessel for the story. So mm. during the time of making the play, it was yeah very difficult. I've kind of felt like it was it was like I was discovering myself for the first time and discovering my family again for the first time and yeah really difficult but also really really a nice yeah it was a nice way to deal with things because I was able to put them all into a piece of work Mm. um yeah but yeah really really difficult and well I mean that's I mean this is such a, a complex story to tell because of your relationship to the the subject matter as well and and the personal story that you tell this isn't simply just just getting up and and acting on on stage mm. for 50 minutes it feels like that you're really going through this experience with with these men and telling your story through theirs yeah it, I mean, every night it's really interesting it's you go on stage and as an actor you kind of do get stuck in a world and it's it's really it's always really hard to explain but especially with these four men I always just find that I really really am in them now and it's it's really interesting to be able to live somebody else's life on stage and you know especially in Perth we were able to perform the shows in front of the men they all came on opening night and so yeah it is yeah, I mean, I feel like I really am opening up myself a lot on stage every night and mm. it, in a way it's really cathartic sometimes, um, but it can be quite difficult. Um, yeah, it's yeah, it's not just a show. 
it's really important and I'm a, pro- I'm a product of all of these men. I'm a product of the history and the policies and everything that's been placed on us. And what was the response from, from those men when they, they first saw the play? <laughs> they were the first ones to stand up and clap at the end of the <laughs> well, play. that's a great sign. <laughs> yeah, so, um, and so over the, time, over the past year, we've um, kept in contact with them all of the time. We always call them every time we do a season and just check in with them and make sure... They know what we're doing and where their stories are being told and they're always just so supportive and loving and will give us as much um, advice and love and support every single time. So it's always it's been really positive from them and um, that's really important. And and you've performed this play, as you mentioned, over the past year and recently I understand you've been to New Zealand, you've been to Adelaide, Perth and, and Brisbane performing mm-hmm. this play. H- has it changed much in that time? Have you adapted it at all and, and reflected on, on each performance as you've, you've gone? Yeah, um, pretty much a whole year ago we started at Melbourne Fringe, we premiered the show um, and we're in this tiny little space at the North Melbourne Town Hall that could fit 25 people and the stage was literally a metre by a metre, and so the set was very different. It was very literal, a chair and table and uh, flowers and props and teapots and cups and things like that. And then as we were touring it, we really discovered that we couldn't take a table and a chair to New Zealand or to Adelaide or to Perth or Brisbane, so our set designer, Chloe Greaves, came in one day with a bag of flour and said to us, this is your new set. And we were like, what do you mean? We had a bit of a breakdown because we're going to New Zealand in a week. (laughs) And um, she was like, well, I read a lot about the, you know, I read the script a lot and all of these references to flower and, and it was, you know, we put it in this circle because it's the cyclical nature of these stories and these policies. Um, So the set has changed a lot and the design has evolved a lot. Everything's just kind of evolved. It's like every season we get to do, we get to kind of, I guess, yeah, evolve the design and the sound and everything. And there's one part of the show that changes every season. And that's uh, for the first five minutes of the show, there's these voiceovers and they're all voiceovers of politicians and journalists and um, just normal people. And they're all white, white voices. So basically we're able to change those every time because always somebody says something a bit stupid. <laughs> that we can it's put in happening, there. doesn't it? So Pauline Hanson was one we just popped in there a week ago. So... Yeah, it's in a way it's been nice to be able to make a real present commentary on everything that's happening in this country right now. So, mm. yeah, it evolves every time. And it's a really powerful way to, to start the play because I kind of want to get onto the set a little bit more later because I think it's really fascinating how, how it's designed. But, but the play starts uh, with you sort of sitting on stage with your back to the audience with this disembodied voiceover of these politicians uh, from Paul Keating's Redfern speeches there, Kevin Rudd's apology to the Stolen Generations, as you mentioned, Pauline Hanson, Tony Abbott talking about lifestyle choices. So there's all these kind of elements and media personalities as well are in there that you can kind of, I mean, I mean, it rings a bell and you think, that's right, I remember that happening five or ten years ago or that happening 20, 25 mm. years ago. And, and I mean, it's, it's difficult for, for you know, a, a white Australian to claim to fully understand the experience of Aboriginal people in this country. But, but something that came through very strongly for me was you really get a sense how Indigenous people are used as a political football. There's all these different high-profile high comments that happen throughout history that just are really disorienting. Yeah, absolutely. And as an Aboriginal person in this country, when you hear things like that, I mean, every night I hear those voices and it just kind of like hits me in the stomach. It is. It's, you know, we're used in a way as a, as a tool for, the, you know, for politics and when there are really good things happening, you don't hear about them. And then when there are really bad things that are happening, you don't hear about them. It's kind of like we're stuck in this middle ground where if it works for the mainstream government or the mainstream Australia, 
where you can be celebrated as an Aboriginal person. That's when you're used. Um, the tourism commercials and, yeah, and so on. Yeah, and you're an Australian, but if Aboriginal people are suffering and going through a lot, then you don't hear about it. You know, I, I guess a lot of people, I talk to a lot of people after the show, I feel like it's a responsibility to always go out and, you know, give people a hug and talk to them after the show. And, you know, I really kind of want to give people a bit of an education after the show too and tell them, you know, about statistics that are out. You know, Aboriginal kids are, have the highest rates of suicide in the whole world. And, you know, we have the, the worst rates of uh, health in the world too. You know, it's, you don't hear about those things. You hear about football players and you hear about um, musicians and sometimes you don't even hear about them sometimes. So it's all of the things that are real for us, our everyday suffering and fight and struggle. You don't hear about those. Mm. Uh, if you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Ian Michael all about his play Heart, which is appearing uh, for the second time this year. It performed last year as well as part of the Melbourne Fringe Festival. It's, it's happening down at La Mama Courthouse. And and the set is, is so powerful in how minimal it is. And it surprises me that, that that sort of happened almost out of convenience in a way that it wasn't the original vision for the show because it works so well and, and the fact that you're just on stage encircled by, by this flower, a ring of flower, there's almost a feeling of kind of entrapment or something mm. and it really directs the focus at, at you. What, what was that process like of, I guess, adapting the set and, and using it in a way that was, was powerful and, and that worked for the story? Yeah, we never, we never knew that it was going to be a ring of flower. Uh, so, like I said before, Chloe came in with a, a bag of flour and she said, well, I think this is the set, and that was it. <laughs> and I fought for a chair, thankfully. But um, uh, my director, Penny Harpen, works in long-form improvisation, and so pretty much that first day we just put the flour down, just, you know, scattered it all over the floor, and they were like, all right, go, go and play. And so I did about a three... We did three-hour improvisations every day in rehearsal, and so it was more about as an actor and a performer and a person just finding those things, that what that flower meant or what it could be. or uh, And then, yeah, we quickly realised that I kept doing these things in a circle, like it was just... It was, I don't know, it's really strange what happens in improvisation. It's, you can never really, I guess, see what's going to happen, so... Penny would write down lots of notes and then we would just workshop them every single day until we realised that we'd kind of had enough, I guess, elements of the flower and um, instinct things that I'd done to put them to script. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it all came really instinctually. Nothing was blocked. Penny never ever said, stand there, stand here. It was all really organic and we... As she said, theatre, collaborate. We all work in collaboration. So nobody has ever told, this is the thing that we want. This is how we want it to sound or look. Um, everybody comes and we just try things. And so it's all you know, a really nice process that we're able to tell these stories in a really kind of natural sense. I mean, everything I, I do on stage comes from me and it comes from the feeling I get when telling those stories. So, yeah, it's all a real collaboration. It's it's really um, I mean it's such a, an engaging play to go and see and I, I encourage anyone to go and see it and I mean it's 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 a form of retelling history I guess which we need to get a lot better at in this country and you alluded earlier to I guess the failure of our education system to, to properly inform us about these practices that have happened for so long over Australia's history and that are really part of, of who we are and our ability to engage this this really goes to the question of of us as, as a nation I think I wonder how, how important you think it is to continue to I guess revise history and and tell these really personal stories that, that paint a different narrative of this country? I think it's really important. And I think, I think with theatre, we're able to kind of tell stories 
without permission from, I guess, the audience. You're able to kind of really... The audience come in to listen to the stories rather than I go to a place and make people listen to me. And so I think that's really powerful about Heart is that people sit down for 55 minutes and all they listen to is black voices after they've heard those voiceovers. And, you know, we've had a lot of school groups come in a lot over the past year and I think, you know, educating or... Um, may, helping people listen and understand because that's what heart is about. Hearts has never ever been about making people feel guilty or making them feel ashamed. It's making them feel like they could make a difference or they could we could all join together and make a change. Mm. Um, and so it's really important that we're able to be really truthful with heart. And I think that's what the beauty of verbatim theatre is that everything in this play came out of an experience that happened to a person. And so you can't deny that truth and you can't deny that history. And so I think when people come, I think hopefully I think that if they leave and something in their mind has changed or shifted and that they're able to talk to about it with their families or their children. And, yeah, you know, it's you have to have hope that something will change one day. Um, but, yeah, hopefully heart can be a part of that change. Mm. I, mean, I mean, that's what personal stories do. I mean, they, these are stories that you're telling and it's a, it's a really, I think... A much easier way to engage with history through storytelling and through that kind of you know, verbatim practice mm. than uh, perhaps you know going through the formal education system and, and, and sometimes at school being forced to learn about things. Uh, I mean, this is a really powerful storytelling method. Thanks, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, it is. It's you know, as, as teenage, teenagers at school, like you know, you know what it's like. You go to school and you, you don't really want to like listen to what your teacher's telling you, but when you get to go and see theatre, like I grew up in a town of 7,000 people and didn't even really know what theatre was until I'd left there and moved to Perth and went to an acting school. So um, it is, it's, you know, I think that's the beauty of theatre and, and also verbatim theatre is that it is the most truthful truth. And that's why, I, you know, I quickly discovered that it needed to be verbatim because there was, yeah, you couldn't deny what these men were saying and as an actor and a performer, you never have to lay anything onto the script or the text. Everything is there. Um, and sometimes, you know, each night's really different. It, sometimes it's not as dark or powerful or aggressive, but it's always going to be the truth. And no audience member can leave and say, oh, I don't believe that because you, you can't. You've got four people completely opening up themselves to all of their traumas and their hurt and their pain and their happiness as well. So, yeah, it's... There's no denying it when you come and see the show. Well, Heart is, uh, is still playing at La Mama Courthouse as part of this year's Melbourne Fringe Festival. It's on uh, selected dates until October the 2nd and you can head to the Melbourne Fringe website for details and to get yourself some tickets. And we've been speak speaking with the performer and writer of the play, Ian Michael. Thanks so much for coming on Triple R. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.